Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hello and welcome to Talk Spooky to Me, the Ghost Story Guys Mail Show. I'm Brenna Store. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is our chance to hear from you, our listeners. Well, okay, ordinarily it is. This episode is all interview. We don't have any mail, but it's for a good reason, and it's because we got to sit down and hang out with Luke Phillips, author of the brilliant horror novel Rogue, which Paul and I have been talking about on this show for, I guess, about what, two months now? Something like that. Yes any opportunity to mention it, we'll squeeze it in there. Yeah, absolutely. And Luke was a ton of fun. So we're really, really excited to share that chat with you. Uh, but before we do, Paul, I, I had uh, a serious thing I wanted to talk about and a funny thing I wanted to talk about. But before we get to either of those, how are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. I've, I've uh, spent a week delving into my uh, newly acquired Hans Holzer books, finding out how spooky books were written in 1979. Always funny when you somebody buys you a book that's forty five years old and, <laughs> and looks it, but yes, I'm, so I'm reading it carefully, and that and uh, and I fell down a, a Jack the Ripper rabbit hole yesterday. Oh, interesting. For some reason, I just I just had an urge to to revisit. Any new insights? Uh, he was still a very bad man. Okay, well that's good. I don't, yeah, I don't know that his I don't know that any amount of study is going to change that conclusion. I hope it doesn't, but. Uh... <laughs> I just wish I could come up with a culprit that I could make a lot of money out of that someone that seems to do every two to three years when they say, this conclusively proves who he was. And uh, here's my £20 book that you can read all about my theories, only available in hardback. I feel like between the two of us, we can come up with someone. Well, yes. yes. It's probably because I've seen a lot of people talking about H.H. H. Holmes again. Oh, right, of course. I was going to say Zach Baggins, but H.H. H. Holmes works too. <laughs> you can't talk about your new collaborator in that way. You, no, no. <laughs> Paul thinks he's very funny. That is not a thing that is happening. <laughs> Sorry, it's the Warrens. <laughs> yeah, me and my Ouija board. <laughs> so there's, like I said, two things I wanted to mention. The first yes. thing, we'll get the serious thing out of the way first. I don't talk about negative reviews on this show much, but this one I think is important to address. We had someone leave a review that complained about the ads in the show. They said that, Clearly, you guys don't give a shit because you just have ads everywhere in your show, right in the middle of conversations. And I just wanted to make it very clear, we do not put those ads in there. We have not consented to having those ads in there. The only ads you should hear in an episode of our show during story shows will come after the story, after the page flip sound effect. Usually there's two or three ad points in the show. During Talk Spooky... You will only have, of course, the pre-roll and the post-roll, and then when I throw to the ad. If you're hearing ads anywhere else in the show, we did not put them there. That is not something we do. That is douchebaggery at its finest. Uh, and you can spare yourself all that hassle 
just by paying a dollar a month over on patreon.com slash ghost story guys there's no ads and you get uh, actually if you pay five bucks you get the episode on saturday instead of tuesday but yeah that was really important to me because i work really hard to make a show that flows and knowing that spotify or who the fuck ever is just shotgunning ads into there like a drunk guy firing out the back door of his house did not make me very happy <laughs> there must be something in the air i got a shitty review this week oh really yeah and said the show's all right but it's just people it's just delusional fantasies lying to each other okay and that was that was it two out of five i got <laughs> i love to give you one star because the camera was pointing in the right direction <laughs> I'd like to say I'm not a delusional fantasist. Every point I make is factually based due to long nights of research. I was talking about negative reviews on an episode of Host Adventures, which of course is one of our patron-only shows. And this is my conclusion, that the people who leave reviews like that are just baby dick losers who are big mad that they're not good enough to do what we do. <laughs> the end. That's it. I don't care. <laughs> yes. I think uh, I'm, I'm going to follow the Jay and Silent Bob response. We're going to show up at their house and punch them in the balls? Yes. All right. I'll go get my cape. <laughs> and uh, so the other thing I want to mention just before we get to talk to our, our chat with Luke is I, I started watching a horror movie the other night called Brightwood, which is about a couple who are sort of kind of having it out during their morning jog, and then they get caught in this time loop. I, it's actually pretty good. It's streaming for free on Tubi in North America if you guys want to watch it. But because I work till quite late and I put movies on quite late, what tends to happen is I, I fall asleep sometimes, <laughs> quite often. Uh, but this was a new one. So I fell asleep. And maybe it was, I think it's an 85 minute movie. I fell asleep at about an hour and 15 minutes. So I fell asleep, but I didn't realize I'd fallen asleep. I thought I just closed my eyes. So I opened my eyes again. And this couple, which had been trapped in the woods, they're now in a shower. And I thought, oh, huh. but they look a little different. Not a lot different, but a little different. And I thought, what, why are they, oh, I guess they're back from the woods. But then it just starts going into a whole other story. And I thought, this, this isn't right. What is, what is happening? And then they're talking in English accents. And I thought, nope, no, the last, the last, that movie is in New Jersey. Is this Hellraiser 2? Well, so it turns out <laughs> I fell asleep during a movie about a couple who are having marital troubles, getting caught in a time loop in the woods. And I woke up during the beginning of another movie about a couple having marital troubles, getting caught in a time loop in the woods. I mean, Tubi's algorithm was really working overtime. I didn't realize this was such a big genre. Nope, neither did I. Uh, and I don't, I, <laughs> I thought I had passed through the looking glass. I thought, Jesus, I've, I've lost it. I finally have snapped. <laughs> All right. Well, as we mentioned on this episode, we have a chat with the fabulous Luke Phillips, author of Rogue. And so... Let's get right to it. Welcome back. Fans of this show will know that 2023 brought us not one, but two incredible action horror novels set in the wilds of America. February saw the release of Churn the Soil by past guest of this show, Steve Stred. And then in October, tonight's guest released Rogue, which tells the story of the brutal secret war to stop a bloodthirsty Sasquatch set against a backdrop of the Pacific Northwest. That guest is, of course, author Luke Phillips, Luke, welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. Thank you very much. It is great to have you here, man. I was flipping through Rogue again this morning, and what a fantastic novel. That is a, an action horror epic. 
that's uh, incredibly kind of you, Brendan. That's uh, yeah. Thank you very much. It's um, I mean, it's certainly um, it was a joy to write. Certainly, some scenes. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, t- I, t- I took it uh, to uh, the next level compared to my previous books, but it appears to have paid off. It's, it's, it appears to be going very, very well with readers. Um, yeah, doing very, very well. Um, obviously, America loves its Bigfoot, you know, so, so uh, it's doing very well across the pond, which I'm very pleased to see. Um, and yeah, and it was a bit of a love letter to, to all things Bigfoot, really, so, um, I- including the schlock horrors of the <laughs> 70s. So, um, <laughs> I, I got to say, man, I was I mentioned to you before we started recording that earlier today I was re-listening to your interview on Mysteries and Monsters, and the level of detail and, and little nods to cryptid lore. Uh, like I told you, this is much more Paul's department than it is mine, <laughs> and I was just blown away by the the level of of knowledge like there was the um with the agent his his code yeah so uh these are how things fall into place sometimes you know in in terms of serendipity and things like that because when i was writing it you know i put the date of the patterson gimlin film as the code and then bizarrely the way amazon production works and things like that by the time i pressed the it, it went live the book actually went live on the anniversary date of the Patterson Giblin um, <laughs> film, so if that's not meant to be, I don't know what is. So um, you know, it, it was so that was quite a fun coincidence for me because uh, Sam Sheeran, who did the uh, the artwork, the cover artwork, he he basically messaged me and you know it's the anniversary, right? And I was like, no. <laughs> so yeah, so it worked out really well, but. I mean, it's interesting cryptids because, I, and I'm sure Paul will probably agree, is that it is a rabbit hole that once you start going down, it's quite difficult to sort of work your way back out. Um, you know, so you spend your time constantly exploring the darkness. Um, so, but I mean, like when I first went into it, I was at university and I was trying to prove that it was all nonsense and they didn't exist. Oh, you know? really? So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I was I was studying zoology at university. I wanted to prove that there was that there was absolutely no way um, big cats could be roaming the British Isles, um, so I set out, you know, as third year projects to sort of say, well, this is nonsense; they can't possibly be supported, and then uh, basically ended up doing a complete U-turn um, and, you know, convincing myself of the opposite; they actually were here. Some key stuff was like seeing thermal footage of a lynx walking down an m6 motorway which was from cheshire oh, wow. police you know so and lynxes do seem to turn up quite regularly but um you know really really good witnesses which you know obviously we get for bigfoot in the u.s as well you know reliable people most of whom don't normally believe in this sort of stuff don't have an interest certainly don't know the law that managed to paint a picture of an animal we're all familiar with you know so and then Many years later, I then actually, after looking for the things for years and then never finding anything, one ran across the road in no. front of my car. Um, so, yeah, so uh, in whilst I was in Seven Oaks, so living in Seven Oaks in Kent, so um, chasing deer. So, and, and you know, the, the, we do have some predators in the UK, but as Paul will attest, badgers aren't known for chasing uh, you know, deer across uh, you know, uh, lonely country lanes. So, even angry ones. No, even angry ones. 
I've been held up in a car once by a badger that wouldn't get off the road, cause a traffic jam. But I've never checked since. Never. <laughs> they they can uh, be quite belligerent if they want to be. They're, oh yeah, yes. And I think uh, American badgers are the same. So. I, I have yet to encounter uh, a badger, thankfully. I, I am. It's it's sort of a, a running joke on this show, Luke, that I, I am not a creature of the woods. I, I actually grew up in the mountains of British Columbia. So I'm, you know, I kind of grew up around the woods. And actually, I grew up in an area not unknown for Bigfoot sightings. But I, I have worked very hard to just stay the hell out of the trees. And, and any giant cats, badgers, Bigfoots, these are all just reinforcement that I have made the right decision. <laughs> and that's before he gets to the dog, man. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's been quite interesting this year, Luke, as you were mentioning about your sighting, that kind of was the, the cherry on the cake for your belief in the big cat thing. Because if we, I don't know if it's, if it's just me, but we seem to be getting a real spate of really good stories already this year. I think there's probably been a, a, a belter every week since the turn of this year. Yeah, I, I always think winter is a good time of year for it. So, because obviously there's less foliage around, um, vegetation is minimal, there's less food around, you know, um, so the ones that prey on deer, rabbits, that sort of stuff, there might be fewer, you know, prey items around. So you tend to get more suspicious livestock kills. Um, you tend right. to get them, you know, perhaps being seen in the day a bit more. They might take interest in people walking their dogs, for instance, um, you know, all of those sort of things. It's also, you know, cats can mate pretty much throughout the year. But again, this time of year, um, they might start be looking at, you know, at mating. Um, so you might be getting calls. You might be, again, they might be on the lookout for a mate and traveling a bit more than they normally are. So it's always a good time of year, just generally for wildlife. But uh, again, for, for big cats, you know, you, you've got a larger animal. There's there's lo- less habitat to conceal them because the trees don't have any leaves. The, you know, the, nothing's in flower. Everything's kind of hunkered down for the winter. Um, so you know, they, they're finding it tougher, and they, they they have a they're having to work a bit harder for a living. But yeah, so it's, it, yeah, so I do think, and also I think as well, last year we did, ha- or in 2022. We had a very good documentary come out, which was called Panthera Britannia, which showed some really good footage. Again, really great thermal footage, which was quite hard to dismiss. A really great trail cam um, picture, which pretty much without any, you know, sort of argument showed a, 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 you know, a mountain lion or puma coming after a, a deer. You know, so, you know, there's pretty left pretty little doubt about what it was. You know, so again, that kind of helped cement the fact that they're here, which has probably made it a bit easier for people to say, I've seen something, or, you know, this looks out of place. There seems to be a bit more growing acceptance, you know, so as the evidence gets better and better. And again, you know, the, uh, the College of Agriculture here is carrying out a really good environmental DNA and pit tooth analysis uh, survey ongoing on, you know, things like deer, you know, suspicious deer kills, livestock kills and things like that. And they've all but confirmed and come out uh, and said that, you know, that they think the cats are here to the point where they've indicated that the, the pit tooth analysis is very similar to mountain lions and leopards, you know, in, in various cases. So there's a lot of stuff which helps people accept that they're here and, you know, come out and say, report a sighting a bit more confidently. Right. Well, th- I guess this question might, might be for both of you then. Why is there still so much pushback 
but like on the cat thing, I mean, we'll talk about Rogue in a moment, but I'm just, but I'm just kind of curious about this because there does seem to be, say for example, unlike Bigfoot, where most of what we have is anecdotal. For the cats, though, you're saying that there's yeah. thermal footage. If there's thermal footage, then there's thermal footage. I don't know how you dispute that. No, it's difficult. I, I think there's a few things going on. I, I mean, it's clearly political. So the moment you say there's a large predator, so so I was I was living in Sydney, for instance, in London when the Sydney panther or yes. you know, was was sighted, <laughs> and. I, I'm not messing around, Brennan. We we the, our school was shut down. You know, a local school was shut down. But pe- people didn't want to send their kids in. There were calls for armed police to be roaming the local oh, wow. woodland. Uh, and this is a suburb of London, so the amount of woodland could you know fit in a school <laughs> bedroom. But uh, you know, it, yeah, that's a bit unkind to sit them. But yeah, but <laughs> there's a very big park, yeah, you know, Crystal Palace Park n- nearby, and there is woodland. There's Sydney Woods, and Dulwich Woods, so you know there was habitat for this cat. Uh, and again, somebody did see it in their garden. Was attacked, you know, allegedly attacked, you know, trying to save his own house cat, you know, to, to you know, and a, again, a policeman collaborated and said that he saw something large and black disappearing over a garden fence. So, uh, so again, again, there is that knee-jerk reaction we don't have any large predators in the uk so i think if the moment you said there are big cats roaming around the country even though alleged attacks could be counted on one one hand there would probably be uproar and a call to go and get these animals the fact that the government haven't actually done that or been able to do that in the in the last 50 years probably suggests it would be quite a costly and difficult exercise secondly Farmers are a big lobby uh, in the UK. If we gave them another excuse to claim livestock killings being made by something else, they would absolutely claim it was being made by something else and look for compensation from the government. Yeah, so I think there's those things going on. But yeah, public safety, you know, we're a nation of dog walkers and, you know, God forbid Fluffy might or uh, you know, uh, Max might be taken by a, you know, a beastly cat. It's all of the sort of things about the people who are not used to living with predators in their midst and how we would react to that. Um, I think all of the test cases, unfortunately, show Britain isn't ready. We like to pretend we've got a stiff upper lip, but anything that's classed as alien in this country terrifies your average person beyond all sort of recognisable sense. It all goes out the window. I mean, we saw that, obviously, as, as Luke will know, with the Beast of Bodmin. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, this this was a cat that was going around killing sheep, and they sent it in the Royal Marines. Yeah. And again, only recently, again, in that uh, documentary I was talking about, uh, Panthera Britannia, the Marine sniper who who saw the cat and reported yes. came out and said, yeah, I saw it, but I wasn't going to shoot it. Uh, you know, um, so and him to go on record is quite quite a big thing. So Right. It It's so unusual because for me, you know, again, coming from a small town, like, it's not unusual to for there to be a, an alert go out and oh yeah there's a cougar on the edge of town you know keep your keep your pets at home or don't go walking by yourself uh, you know after dark or whatever and so yeah the notion that we're well no that's just we're just going to pretend that didn't uh, that's not a thing that's happening it's kind of it's very funny to me so it, 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 given those those reasons that makes sense but hard to get my head around w- without knowing the, the the context no no it is and, and Britain did a really good job of getting rid of all of our top predators. Uh, you know, we exterminated bears and lynx, you know, back in the any time between sort of the you know, 800 um, 
AD and 1400 AD. Um, depending on the records, wolves. You know, we we started pretty much killing off in the 1400s, and around about the 1600s, we pretty much got rid of them. Although it is alleged that the last wolf in Scotland was killed in in, in the early 1800s. You know, so so you know they did hang on for a little bit, but it's uh, and then and what's horrendous is that we have an out of kilter ecosystem. So we strangely enough, we don't have any top predators. So we have an ecosystem where we've got a deer population in the UK where we've got more deer than we've ever had historically, you know, um, put together. So, uh, and, you know, given that, again, historically, the only people allowed to hunt deer were very rich people, you know, on, on their own land, um, our ability to cull deer populations, you know, has never been something we're, we're good at. So the fact that we've now got a top predator with this deer inside this deer rich sort of paradise. I, again, I possibly think the, um, the the government are going. Oh, thank goodness! Don't tell anyone, you know, because <laughs> you know, yeah, um, because actually we do need a top predator, and officially we haven't got one. Yeah, you keep electing them to office. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, once they're their top predators. Okay, they're just predators. To... Yeah, <laughs> but the top yeah. ones are at the BBC or were. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's strange things pockets of creatures in this country that until it basically runs up and punches somebody in the face, the, the officials will say, no, there's nothing happening here. The, the same thing happened with the hogs. There was no hog population in this country. They refused to officially accept that it was until people started waking up on mornings and discovering their entire gardens had been turned over during the night by boars. And then all of a sudden people started filming them in, in and around the Forest of Dean. And then it all came out that there were hundreds of the buggers running about. And so it's one of those things that I think that until something tragic happens, it won't be accepted. And it's the same with the boar thing. They're trying to sort of suppress how ingrained in that area they've become and how quickly they spread. As you can see in, in the States, it's become almost like a an alien invasion in certain states where they're just becoming overrun by super packs of, of hogs just running riot, that it's it's going to take somebody getting seriously hurt for them to take it seriously. And it's the same with the cat situation. Until something bad really happens, they're not bothered. You know, like Luke was saying, uh, the, the cinnamon case, is that the bodybuilder that ended up having a scrap with it in his garden? That's the one. Yeah, I, I, we've talked about it before, Paul, but I've forgotten his name. But yeah, I, and again, very stand-up guy, you know, clearly had the, um, the the scratches to show it. wasn't interested in publicity or you know causing a fuss. And as I said, you know, a policeman at the scene verified some of the report. You know, so yeah. And, and again, um, you know, it was clear that he wasn't fighting a normal house cat. You know, put it that way. So, <laughs> uh, which was one of the allegations is that he'd, he'd yeah he'd uh, he'd scared off a you know a, a normal house cat, which wasn't. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, to be fair, we, we can't get to the bottom of what's going on in Dorset because at the minute, somebody keeps dumping dead giant tortoises in the woods and nobody's any idea where they're coming from. Nobody's lost any. So if we can't track where enormous tortoises are being dumped from, what chance do we expect them to have in regards to, to tracking elusive and beasts that are known for their sneakiness? I got to say, man, I love tortoises. I find this very upsetting. Yeah. yeah, and it's not just one or two. I think there's, there's been about a dozen now, Luke. 
I don't know if it's that high, but it's it's along those lines. I mean, it's to the point where it's a thing, you know. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, and it's bizarre. But again, going back to the ball, we uh, I mean, we have ball where I live in Kent, and there's uh, yeah a, a big big um, main road through Kent called the A21, which goes to the next county. And if you drive along the A21, you can see where the boar have basically ploughed along you know the roadside and you know digging for roots and, and actually i even had a friend call me the other day because she was walking in woodland uh, and she said oh out of interest what's this noise and it was boars you know um, bleating <laughs> and i was like yeah you might want to walk the other way um <laughs> you know, so but again the other thing to mention is that in this country if they're an elite if they're an exotic animal or an illegal imported animal they have no rights so they're fair game oh interesting um so for instance rye which is a town in east sussex has a boar festival every every year um you know you know people go into you know, there is a, a hunt for them if you find one on your land you're quite happy to shoot it without any uh, uh repercussions uh, and the same goes for the big cats the big cats have no protection so you know private landowners deer estates you know game estates that sort of place uh, even one i heard on a, a fishing lakes if, if they will hire people in to shoot these things isn't that a thing in germany as well that they, they sort of have too many wild boars yeah, so you're sort yeah. of welcome to you want to shoot a couple on your way out the door go nuts yeah well again uh, i mentioned it because because it's interesting because I, I mentioned the the boar political situation in shadow beast my first book because <laughs> and i mentioned it in the uk and then bizarrely it comes up very briefly in rogue because obviously oregon has got this boar population you know or feral pig population which is now pushing into washington state and to the point where they've called absolute blast away do what you, you know you, you can't keep them you can't breed them you can't trade them you know the only good pig is a dead pig sort of thing you know so but still they're even despite this extermination program they're seeing these trickles of boar populations come up from Oregon in, in California into Oregon and into Washington now. So. Yeah. The Germans are too concerned about their raccoon explosion as well because they've got, yeah. I think they've got the largest population of raccoons outside of North America. Yeah. Yeah. They were all just pets that were released. Yeah. We're not going to be far behind them, I don't think, on the raccoons. Yeah. We've, yeah. We've, we've, and raccoon dogs. Yeah. We've got raccoons, raccoon dogs, and coatis here now. So. No, we haven't, Luke. No. Nothing <laughs> going on. <laughs> it's like when I discovered we've got capybaras living in the Norfolk Broads. And they're Absolutely. Like, no, and, some, no. and, and Somerset, apparently. Is about apparently, <laughs> yes. they, yeah. apparently they were all exterminated. That that government program was completely completely successful. So, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You'll be telling me there's wallabies in the country next, Luke. Oh, uh, well, it's a good thing you're sitting down, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's all sorts here. And it's such, to do the cull thing too is such a fraught, like politically is such a fraught maneuver. Cause I, um, we, I, I'm sure you guys are aware we did a big wolf cull in Canada in, I think 2015. Yeah. And I worked uh, for a consulting company who, who one of our biologists consulted on that. And I know that was uh, a very, very big fight and, and still is. I know they're still doing um, FY requests. And so, yeah, eight, eight, nine years later, it is still a hot button issue. And, and I don't know, you know, I don't know whether it was right or not. I'm not a biologist, but it just seems like you, there's no 
good way to address the problem. No, I, I mean, I'm actually reading a, a really interesting book at the moment called Ghost Grizzlies, which is all about the potential of grizzlies still surviving in Colorado. Because, oh. again, Colorado is one of those states where they go, we've killed all the grizzlies, and then somebody shoots a grizzly and go, Now we've killed all the grizzlies. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know, 10, 15 years later, they kill another one. And go, well, no, they're definitely all gone now. You know, uh, and then in 1992, they killed another one. They went, they might pass through from town <laughs> to time, but they're, they're definitely not living here. Yeah, look, check his driver's license. He's not from here. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, of course, all the division wildlife experts came out and went, we're pretty sure they're living here, but you won't let us say they're living here. So, you know, and they've become very good at avoiding people because we keep shooting them. That's yeah, fair. So, I, too, would avoid people. Um, yeah. It's really interesting in that book because what he says it's become a political, uh, you know, football, and actually the science doesn't get a say. That sounds familiar. You know, yeah, good normal logic and research, which is being presented all the time, actually isn't getting a say. And and the thing is, the problem is you've got two extremes: the, the hunters and the anti-hunters, who are like so. The hunters make up about fifteen percent of the population. And the anti-hunters make up 10%. So that means you've got 75% of the public. And actually, they're not anti-hunting. And actually, most normal people wouldn't be. But what they are for is ethical sure. hunting, the way an animal is treated, the way it dies, and the fact that how an individual animal dies is important. So, And actually, that's where they, this guy says, you know, the political and authorities and the wildlife divisions, this is where they're going wrong because they're basically saying they're not listening to the 75% of people. They're trying to listen to the 10% or the 15%, and both of those are extremes and they can't get it right. Whereas actually if you found some middle ground, which is where 75% of your vote is coming from, probably have a pretty good system and a pretty good uh, way of you know, sort of mitigating wildlife. Got to say, Luke, this is sounding real familiar to, uh, let me check my notes, every other problem we're facing in the world right now. <laughs> I knew it sounded familiar. Luke, uh, again, I want to reiterate how much I, I loved Rogue. I, when I was a kid, I remember reading, maybe my, my I, was, I was a teenager. There was this author, and he's still around, but I haven't read anything he's written in years. But at the time, he'd written these books, Kane, uh, The Reckoning, and Hunter, a guy named uh, James Byron Huggins. And they're really pretty crackerjack action, like especially as they went on kind of horror action novels. And I really love them. I know at one point, Hunter had been optioned by Sylvester Stallone, and it, it was never actually made into a film, but that's kind of what put me onto it. I got to say, when I was reading Rogue, it just took me right back to those books. It's just so, I mean, it's a big book, but you wouldn't know it because it moves so quickly and so smoothly. And it is so engaging that you never really find yourself thinking like, holy crap, I'm reading a 500-page novel about murderous Bigfoot. It, yeah, I mean, thank you. I mean, I, I did want it to be, you know, once it got going in terms of the, uh, the pace, I did want it to be pretty... I wanted the story to to you know, roll on at quite a pace once we realised where we were going, and once people had got used to the fact that there was a bigfoot that was going to be ripping people to shreds. Oh shit. man! <laughs> uh, you know, but you know, they didn't have to wait too long in between kills. 
but yeah, and as I say, there was a, a sort of a tip of the, the hat to to some of the you know the creature of Black Black Lake and you know things like that uh, and Snow Beast and, and you know all of the seventies sort of you know schlock sort of horrors really. But yeah, it's um, thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, you know, and uh, I indulged a lot, shall we say? Um, you know, in, in my horror. I. I say when I was, I remember reading it, and as soon as, and and this really seems to be a thing. I seem to have found myself meeting a group of authors who are doing a lot of kind of that revival of the splatterpunk genre, you know, stuff like, um, I, I mean, originally light, the light at the end, and and you know, I can't remember the name of the authors who wrote that, but and I, I wasn't actually expecting that from this. And then there's like right at the beginning, dude gets his head torn off, and you think, oh. <laughs> okay, we're not we're not fucking around. And as as uh, as you both know, as you've kindly read the book, um, getting your head ripped off is the is the least of your problems. <laughs> there, there is uh, a scene which is again horror, like just beautiful classic horror, where some people sneak off to get up to the thing that it is men and women typically sneak off to get up to, and to and say it ends badly is yes, does absolutely does. Uh, Again, I mean, it is it is pretty brutal. Um, that bit is, but again, it's based on actual chimp behavior. Oh, really? So, yeah. So chimps, when they attack, they have two targets. It's the face and Holy the genitals. Crap. And in chimp hierarchy, if you want to show you're big and bad, you will go out displaying yourself. Because, you know, because you know you're that confident that you won't be messed with. Where you know, but it, yeah, it's. Um, Chimp society is not a nice society to uh, to be a an ins- a subordinate male in. I feel like so, just so. like if you, if you really if you really want to show me your boss, just kick me in the boys. I don't think we need to remove them. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this you're gilding the lily a little bit at this point. This is overkill, guys. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably as frustrated with uh, cryptid television as as a lot of viewers were, and that's probably why he took took matters into his own hands, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, you've got a uh, a Bigfoot yeah. TV show crew in there. Yeah, very very funny, and uh, they they met the end that perhaps we've all thought about at some point. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, as I think I said to Paul, I, I I called the TV program in the um in the in the book Seeking Sasquatch, which perhaps could have been a little bit more. <laughs> But it, it 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 kind of made me smile. It seems to make everybody else smile. Um, so, and then I think in one bit where one of the characters says, "Oh, you found Bigfoot. Well, you've done something that Discovery couldn't do in ten years." <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's it's yeah. It's, there's a little bit of tongue in cheek, and again, I think if you're into Bigfoot, people will sort of you know enjoy that kind of. Uh, and with those guys, I, I felt like you did something really brilliantly. And it's something I love, which is world building. I am a sucker for for lore when it comes to to these kinds of things. And you do this really brilliant job with with the Bigfoot team, you know, the fact that they know Bigfoot exists, they've got footage, and every time they get it, the government comes in and says, Nope, that's ours now. And you drop all these subtle hints uh, that there is a much larger world out there. Again, I'm 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 a huge fan of that kind of thing, and I'm kind of curious. I mean, obviously, you've talked about Southern Rogue being on the way, the, the sequel, but did you flesh out a lot of this stuff in your head, or are you just kind of throwing out references and going, "Well, if that catches with audiences, we'll build that out when we have to." No, there is a lot of it is built on the existing law. Yeah, you know, I've I've got to be upfront about that. Over the years, I've heard 
all sorts of stories um which you know i've built into this into my own story so for instance you know the the langley laboratory for wildlife you know it, that i mentioned in the book that is i allegedly you know a real place that where they have been have done bigfoot experiments and things like that again the report of you know this uh, sort of special seal team um who who went out after these five killer bigfoot in kentucky again that's you know it's an alleged story that has sort of been collected and passed down over the ages it, it, what's bizarre is yeah there is an aspect of when you're writing the story it does take its own so there was when i started writing the story and um, the other cryptid animal that was going to be in it wasn't necessarily going to be in it and what's quite interesting is one of the one of the characters who i started writing he when i first started writing him he was absolutely a villain you know um so jones you know, right so, so basically jones yeah agent jones he was going to be a villain and he almost by the end of it he's almost a father figure you know um you know because i've but part of that was as i worked on his background and i worked on what he was doing and why he was motivated the way he was um you know it became clear that actually he's not the villain because he's not at the top of the chain and that's where other the government aspects and things like that it, it fell into place more that this was where i was going um as i say there there is another another story that i want to tell which takes place in a bigger world so i did have to set that up you know i had to set up a world where bigfoot was perhaps more accepted so bigfoot at some point had to be revealed you know to be true which is why we have the end that we do you know because you know uh, and stuff like that and um, i needed agent jones and agent smith to go their separate ways because one represents you know the truth and doing good and the other represents doing what they see as the greater good but perhaps not in the public interest so you know uh, uh, and again i think that is a theme that's as, as you said earlier brennan probably familiar in a lot of things we're doing today <laughs> or in a lot of political uh, fields that we see today so it made sense and again jones has got his own agenda you know he eventually i want to take the story to montana um, and you know do something there based on some very specific sightings and activities. So. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about your process. I mean, are you an outliner or are you more of a just see where it takes you as you write? So uh, it's a bit of both, Brennan, to be honest, in terms of, so I, I always start out with a, you know, a, an outline of a couple of pages, which is a, you know each chapter gets a breakdown, normally a paragraph of two, you know, just explaining what happens in that chapter. That always expands whilst I'm writing. So the thing that informs my story the most is that whenever I do a story, I do character bios. And they will again evolve as I write the story a little bit. I'll give you an example. When I first started writing Nina, um, you know, the protagonist in, in Rogue, she was quite girly. You know, she was, you know, she was, yeah, so she, you know, she had she had a horse and she had a husky and all, all of these things and you know and she had you know a flowery you know bedroom and you know there was this kind of naivety to her and that didn't work at all that you know that, that you know the moment i started writing her you know as uh truman capote said you can never blame a, a, a writer for things the characters right. do or say because um, <laughs> you know because they do have their own sort of life 
obviously it did help that I had introduced Nina in my last book. But, you know, it became very clear that Nina was someone else. She's experienced trauma. You know, by the time I started looking at her actual background, where she's had two quite big traumas in her life, um, you know, she's quite independent. She looks after an elderly parent. You know, when you start looking at Native Americans who live on reservations and things like that, you know, they it's not a joyful and peachy world. So, you know, I had to make it much more realistic, much more um, in line with that. Uh, and then she became somebody else. And actually, that massively shaped the direction I could take the, the story in because she became this independent, intelligent, you know, straight up person who was, you know, respectful of her past, but actually, you know, hadn't dealt with trauma, hadn't dealt with, you know, the, the demons that she was carrying around with her, but, you know, and, and lots of other things. And that shaped the story. And again, once I'd done that for everybody else in the, in the story, you kind of got all of these pieces that fit together as a jigsaw. And then the story elements, you know, the, that world building that you create around them, that kind of does a lot of the work um, of building the story and the world that they live in. And then all you've really got to do is start joining the dots and, you know, sort of work out what plays. And again, I do, as, you know, one of the things I think is unique to, to some of my books is that I obviously do tell the side of the, the creatures, you know. So I, sorry, introduce that aspect of animal behaviour, you know, the, and how they respond to their environment, which is obviously very, very different to how humans work. Yeah, and I was really curious, some of the stuff you come up with for explaining how Bigfoot is able or how Bigfoot are able to do the things that people who believe they're a flesh and blood creature um, say they can do, you know, there's some really ingenious stuff, you know, the, uh, the mud armor and, and sort of disguising body signature. Where does that come from? It, so that's, that's a native American legend. Oh, okay. You know, so, uh, you know, potentially called rock oaks, you know, they, they were, the legend is that there is, they were have seen being doing exactly that cleansing themselves with river clay which hardens over time um you know which makes made them practically invincible to arrowheads uh, and made them quite the adversary to take on you know so so that again that's linked to the actual law and, and, and legends of certain tribes um you know so it's it, yeah so again i can't take credit for that um but there were aspects uh, obviously in my books or in this book bigfoot is very much a flesh and blood creature and I had to explain some of the woo aspects, which I wanted to include. I had to explain them in ways that are, are recognised in the natural world. So the ability to thermoregulate, for instance, you know, uh, having iridescent hair, you know. So you know, uh, so again, which again, when we've seen big hair samples, allegedly they do appear to be these very clear. Um, non-filament hairs, you know, which would suggest that there is this aspect of of having a, an ability to sort of so uh, again. So, for instance, you know, that's taken for um, a lot of people. For instance, if they see a kingfisher, they see this beautiful blue, you know, iridescent bird. Um, and then when you get a kingfisher feather on its own, people get really disappointed because it looks very dull and grey uh, because of its light properties. Um, and how it reflects and translates light. Um, so actually, when you get a, some of the single downy feathers from the breast, for instance, they look very, very dark, you know, grey. They, they don't look blue at all. So, 
Uh, and so that that's just one of the aspects I wanted to sort of introduce. And, and, and basically pretty much everything a Bigfoot does, there is a way of explaining it in the natural world. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm relying on the fact that luckily we haven't got one in a zoo somewhere, but we, that some people, I'm sure there's plenty of people, you know, either shouting at their, their radios or their podcasts and going, no, of course they can't do that. They, they, they do it because this, and they walk through portals and all that sort of stuff. Um, the, the thing is, we don't actually, we haven't yet proved they, they exist. We don't know they're around. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to take liberty uh, with that and my, my Bigfoot. Um, you know, one uh, is flesh and blood and has a number of biological attributes which you know, make it pretty good at being the ninja of the woods. And as I like to tease Paul, the, he's an alien anyways. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think like Luke explains very well, there, a lot of the woo stuff comes from people who have no knowledge of the, of the natural world. And so they can't grasp the concept that some of these strange things occur in other species across the world. And they think, oh, well, that can't possibly be real. And so that's why they suddenly leap from flesh and blood to transdimensional portals because they've no they've no biological basis. They don't know anything about the natural world at all. So for them, anything outside of what a normal animal does is magic. Yeah, it's it's, it's always an interesting conundrum, and I think as well some of the things we've got to remember as well is is what's become legend and what's become accepted you know, in the storytelling, you know, I was, uh, you know, listening to a really interesting interview with Matt Pruitt, who wrote a great book called The Phenomenal Sasquatch. And one of the things he was talking about was this phenomenon where people have said, oh, what about these tracks of Bigfoot tracks where, you know, they just disappear suddenly in the middle of a meadow or in a snowfield, you know, the tracks go a certain way and they suddenly disappear which has become sort of accepted fact and he's actually said i've been collecting bigfoot reports for years and i've got no reports of that actually being verified you know he you know he said it's always somebody's cousin's lost brother half you know sister's friend that they've heard this from but actually the, the verified reports where they've heard it from the pet the witness he hasn't got many records of this if at all so again, I think some of those aspects that we've that have become part of the the Bigfoot lore and legends, we need to we do need to think about questioning. And I, and, I, and again, I do think you know to quote Sherlock Holmes, who again gets a, a, a bit of a nod of the head and a mention in Rogue. You know, the more fantastical the claim, the more fantastical the evidence needs to be. And I don't think we should shy away from that. You know, that's not an unreasonable expectation that when you make a fantastic claim. You should probably back it up with some fantastic evidence. You know. Yeah, and animals are known to walk in their own footprints as well. Most, so yeah, obviously, most animals are you know worth their own salt, particularly predators. That they will use the most efficient mode of travel possible, which normally means walking inside your own tracks. You know, bears do it, wolves do it, cats do it. You know, it's only us who's you know sort of got this relatively weird bipedal. Um, you know, uh, gate, but we don't do it. And 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 actually, this is the other thing about Bigfoot is that if, if Bigfoot is made up, how did it magically evolve this brilliant and you know a more efficient way of walking bipedally than we did 
just by somebody hoaxing it. It's it's one of those sort of perplexing arguments and questions where you go, well, either whoever did it, and the alleged is obviously it's a bunch of loggers, you know, in right. California. You know, I really don't I don't think that they were sort of okay, we're going to do this Bigfoot hoax, but um, let's get a, a really deep understanding of bipedal biology <laughs> so, that we, so we can really pull it off. You know, it's difficult to believe that, that they were that invested in it. You know, I grew up around loggers, Luke, and, and they're not stupid people by any means as a group, but also n- the ones <laughs> I knew were deeply interested in, dis- in studying locomotion. Yeah. <laughs> So, Luke, we're going to uh, we're going to start uh, winding it down here. But before we do, I just want to ask the obviously there's a, Paul and I have talked at length on the show about about Rogue uh, leading to this. And obviously we've never spoiled the twist, but we've we've definitely mentioned there is a twist. And was there ever any um, conflict within you? Because that twist kind of points things in a more, you know, f- for a book that has been as rooted as possible in sort of scientific theory around how these things would operate. The book sort of then pivots to a more spiritual direction. Did you have any conflict over that internally as to whether or not you should go that direction? Um, so when I was building up to it, again, it kind of, the story started pivoting that way because I almost cornered myself because I'd basically built up this you know, this creature to almost be indestructible. You know, A bunch of army guys had gone after it. A bunch of rangers had gone after it a Sasquatch savvy team had gone after it um, and he'd bested most of them and, you know, certainly um, given them all something to think about. So I'd gotten to the point where I was like, well, okay, what is actually going to be able to take this thing down to, you know, to a certain extent, you know, mother nature does a a vacuum. So I thought, well, there has to be an answer in nature or in a, a natural element, but with the creature I had in mind, I mean, I, I spoke to biologists, uh, I spoke to paleobiologists, I spoke to people at natural history museums, uh, and all of the way through it, I said, can you possibly think of any biological adaptation that would allow, we, we might as well sort of you know, hint at it, you know, a, an animal that normally walks on all fours to occasionally stand up and be bipedal? Um, uh, you know, and they, none of them, could really help me create a biological, you know, jigsaw piece that fits, you know, so like, you know, like Bigfoot was almost easy for them. And they're going, oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've got, we've got like 20 hominids, you know, sort of fossils that we can, you know, we could, we can do that. That's fine. Um, you know, something else uh, that might resemble a, a, a typical horror movie monster, um, coming up with a biological way of describing that was harder. So, and, and I got to a point where I was like, why am I fighting this? You know, there is an explanation. There is an explanation in culture. But, you know, it, it, and I don't mean re- recent culture. I mean, there is an explanation in Native American culture. You know, that explains this and explains what it could do and explains some of the sightings and what it's done. You know, why fight it? So, and, and again, the moment I went down it, it made sense how this creature acts and you know its purpose and things like that it all kind of fell into place so you know there wasn't that little bit of conflict but again um you know i obviously make no bones about it that this is fiction um and you know it, it was well <laughs> it, but to a certain extent i wanted to have some fun 
Um, it seems the twist goes down very well. A lot of people are, again, but also for that reason, Brennan, because of the way the story's been, a lot of people aren't expecting it, which is which is kind of nice to hear even now. So, um, yeah, so, but no, I, I, and also I've got a bit of a love affair with that particular animal. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get it in somehow, but with the biological sort of argument wasn't working for me, so... And it's handled very organically. You know, there's never a point where, because again, Paul told me to read the book. So I, I, I read the book. And as it was sort of progressing towards this, I was I was in that camp where I thought, well, what the hell are they going to do? This thing is, this thing is like a one-man army. How do you stop this? And then when events started unfolding, I, I really was like, oh, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But when it happens, it, it just makes it, – again, it flows. It makes sense. It doesn't – it doesn't – grow because I feel like th- there is a world where that decision kind of invalidates the rest of the book or grinds everything to a halt. But it was handled so well that it just – you accept it, you know? And, and I, I think I, – yeah, I, I think it is just – it's handled it in just the right way to make it seem like, no, this is a natural extension of this world. And, and genuinely, it's frightening. I mean – there's a, a scene, obviously, after the summoning, and it's kind of just hanging around. And it, it, what I really liked about it is it's it's very much a Freddy versus Jason moment. You know, it's not it's not the good guy. It, no, it's, no, it's a, it, an impartial force of nature that is meant to restore balance, but it it doesn't mean it's on your side. And it's it actually I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. <laughs> no, and I, I and I think there is that you know. Nina's father explains it, you know, pretty well, you know, in the, exactly like that, Brennan. He said, you know, yeah, this thing is, this thing's, you know, uh, it's not your friend. You know, it's, you know, uh, and, and again, but a, a, a lot of the things that it does are some of the things witnesses report, you know. But that, but that's, but I, again, that's why I find it interesting because this is clearly an animal that could, that is built to kill. It, it has all of these weaponry. It looks menacing. Uh, people talk about it having a very vindictive, you know, malicious nature. Um, you know, uh, and it seems to genuinely get off on scaring people. You know, uh, you know. So, uh, but, but then again, it, you know, it could literally kill you without, you know, without breaking a swear. But it, it very rarely, if ever, does. So what, again, how does that fit into the storytelling? And, and actually, by giving it a job to do, you know, and if you, God forbid you if you get it in its way, but, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know uh, but, yeah, it's, do you actually think it, it does add to the spookiness? Um, it, it, it certainly adds to the, the you know, the, the scary aspect of it. Um, in fact, I, uh, I got a, a very nice um, sort of secondhand compliment through, through my family where they, they said my dad had said he, he was reading it and, and, and he had to keep putting it down and, and, and think about other things later. And I think it's probably the first of my books that scared him. So, Well, again, our guest has been Luke Phillips, author of the spectacular action horror novel Rogue, available, as Luke said, everywhere fine books are sold, especially Amazon. Luke, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Uh, it's been an absolute honor, Brennan. I really appreciate it. And Paul, really appreciate it. It's been lovely. Pleasure as always, buddy. Thank you. Welcome back. Thanks again to Luke Phillips for hanging out with us. 
Don't forget to check out Rogue. You'll find that on Amazon. We'll put a link in the show notes. You can get a physical or Kindle copy, or as Luke mentioned, the audiobook is in production now. So either way, check out Rogue on Amazon and check out Luke's other work as well. I'm recording this several days after our conversation. So sadly, Paul is not here with me, but you know that you can find him on the Mysteries and Monsters podcast everywhere. Find podcasts, live, and you can also find him by searching for Mysteries and Monsters on social media platforms everywhere. If you want to find me on social media, I am Largely the Truth on Threads, Blue Sky, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can find the second edition of my book, A Strange Little Place, available everywhere. Fine books are sold, but mostly Amazon. And you can find my other podcast, Weird Together, where Joseph Camo and I talk about the sociology of horror films everywhere you get your podcasts. That's our show. Thank you so, so much for spending the time with us. And as we always like to do here on Talk Spooky, we have a featured artist to see us off. This time around, we are featuring our third and final track from St. Louis-based artist Greco Ray, and that is Fire Inside, a collaboration with the artist Journey. We are big fans of Greco Ray here at the show, and we have been proud to share three of her most recent collaborations over the last few episodes of Talk Spooky to Me. If you want to hear more from her, you can search for Greco Ray wherever you stream your music, or you can head to the show notes at ghoststoryguys.com, where you will find a link to all of her various spots on the web. Supporting independent creators is a big part of what we do here at the Ghost Story Guys, so if you are an independent musician and you would like to share your music here on the show, shoot us an email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. You can also try approaching us on Instagram. We're at the Ghost Story Guys, but we have a pretty big following over there, and sometimes it can be tough to keep track of DMs. So if you really want to cut through the noise, shoot us an email, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com, and we'll see what we can do for you. All right, folks, thank you again for hanging out with us, and until next time, we will leave you with Greco Ray and Jarney and Fire Inside. Can I see him? of my heart my heart
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. 